Well, it is a good morning to be here. Psalms 122 says it best. It says, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And this is certainly the place where the Lord dwells. When nobody is in this space, usually Mondays, nobody's here. Uh, I'm usually walking up and down these rows and just praying, praying for you, praying for your family. Sometimes I see your faces in the seats that you normally sit in and get to pray for you. And one thing I can promise you is that we, the Lord just doesn't need an invitation to come in here. He just comes and sits. And even when no one else is here, I, I can sense and feel his presence. So I, I'm grateful to, uh, to the Lord for community. I'm grateful to the Lord for uh, being able to gather with God's people. Y'all look good this morning. Y'all really do. Y'all look good. Y'all should look at your neighbor and just give them a compliment. Tell them you look good. Tell them you, you smell nice today. You got your hair did, got your nails done, got a pedicure. You hear me quoting Missy Elliott, right? Just throwing it right in. Amen. It is a good morning to be here. Why don't you guys do me a favor and, and grab your Bibles. Cut out the small talk at the beginning. Grab your Bibles and meet me in 1 Peter chapter 3. Your Bibles or your devices, meet me there. We are continuing in our First Peter series today, and uh, we're really accomplishing a, a major goal today. I told you guys, anytime you go through a book of the Bible, whenever you accomplish uh, being able to check off one of the chapters, it is a great accomplishment. It is something to rejoice. For those of you who are first-time visitors or you've been coming here for a little bit but not sure how we do our time in the pulpit, one of the things we love to do is get into a book of the Bible uh, particularly because the, t the scriptures tell us to teach all that the Lord has commanded. And one of the ways we find best to do that is by going through a book of the Bible. And I always say it, but it's so true. When, when we go through the book of a Bible, it doesn't give me right to skip over any parts of God's word. Uh, and I can promise you, if I could skip, I would skip this passage today. Let me just tell you, it's, it was a very difficult passage. Uh, and so uh, but nevertheless, we are committed to going through all of the Bible. But today is a great accomplishment because we get to finish a chapter today. We're ending off in chapter three today. Next week, we'll be in chapter four. And we are working our way through. I know it feels like we've been in the book of First Peter for 10,000 years. Um, but I promise we'll finish by November. Just well, let me not promise. I hope to finish by November if the Lord says the same. Uh, before I jump into the text, I, I just quickly wanted to mention a couple of things really some household items. The, the first thing is our two services. I hope you guys are excited about it. Uh, thank you for filling out those surveys. If you still have your survey, please drop it into hospitality on your way out. It is a good way for us to gauge uh, what our two services will look like. Um, in addition to just talking about two services, it's important that if you come here, if you've been coming here, if you're a committed, um, uh, a committed attender, or if you are a covenant community member, we are really hoping that you will plug in and serve in some capacity of the church. Whenever you go to two services, it, it just is very difficult to maintain two services without a good, robust group of volunteers. And sometimes, you know, we, we come in and, and we can be very consumeristic, in, especially millennial generation. We can be very consumeristic and we can say, man, what does the church have for me? The, the greater question is, what can you provide for the church to build the kingdom of God. And so if you are not serving, if you're looking for ways to plug in, there are a ton of ways. Hospitality is looking for people. Our media team, if you sing, our worship team is looking for people. Uh, I can tell you now our children's ministry, please talk to Carlos afterwards. Uh, you can talk to Ty as well. Our children's ministry is looking for volunteers as well. So we re really, really, really need some more people to, to put their hands to the plow. Uh, the second thing I just quickly want to mention is our small groups. 
All of our small group leaders, if you're in here, if you're a host or a small group leader, if you could just raise your hand. Amen. Let's thank God for our hosts and small group leaders. Amen. It, is a, it takes a lot for each week for them to actually do life together and, and bring people together, facilitate conversation, but also open your house to people to bring their lives and their junk and our mess into their households. And so thank you to all of our small group leaders. If you're not a part of a small group, the main way we do community here is through small group. So Sunday morning, I mean, this is, this is great, but this is just a picture into the church. This is not the full picture of what the church is but our small groups is where we actually get to do life and confess sin and walk well with one another and, and serve one another in hard times, which we all will have. So if you're not a part of a small group, please check into our, our, uh, our app or you can check into our website or you can just ask around where the small group's at. We got two in Bed-Stuy, one in, is that East Flatbush or Flatbush? East Flatbush. And then we have one in Crown Heights and you can certainly plug in. All right, pick me up in verse 18. Excited to get in God's word. First Peter chapter three, verse 18 says this for Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. Please underline this phrase that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was still being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. This is a problem text. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, but not as a removal from dirt or not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 22, who has gone into the heavens and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. Uh, I want to simply preach from the topic today entitled, The Suffering of Jesus. The Suffering of Jesus. Let's look to the Lord. Father, this morning, may we never presume that we can understand your word without the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, this will just be some academic exercise today. This will just be an information dump without the Holy Spirit. But we get transformation when the Holy Spirit breathes on us by his word. So, Lord, would you meet us today? Reality is, Lord, every single week we've gathered together in this building, you have met us. There's never been a week that we've got up here and did not have a fruitful word. And, Lord, I just pray, Lord, that you would apply this word to our lives. The beauty in the word of God is that, Lord, it can just hit all of us in different seasons of life, coming in with different baggage. But all of us can gain something out of the word. And so, Lord, today, would you use the word to really encourage us and convict us both in which we need. I pray that the gospel would be clear. I pray that Jesus Christ would be the focus and the hero of the text. I pray that you would, uh, we would not walk out of here and feel like we are the heroes. We are not. We never are. You always are. And so, Lord, would you get at us today through your word, through what Peter has said to the readers during this time. It is in Christ's name and Christ's name alone we pray. Amen. Ouch is a very, very common expression of pain. Whenever someone says, ouch, you, it's usually accompanied by some type of pain. So when you stub your toe on the couch, you usually say, ouch. Or when you're washing dishes, I don't know how your water is. My water fluctuates, and so sometimes it just gets real hot out of nowhere. Uh, and whenever you do that and you burn your hand, you normally respond by saying, ouch. 
Ouch is a sufficient example. If you slam your finger in the door, you normally say ouch. Now, granted, some of you probably follow up with a few more words outside of ouch. I can't say them in the pulpit today. Nevertheless, ouch usually is a sufficient announcement that there is pain. And there's all types of pain. There's pain that happens because of event, because you do slam your finger in the door. And then there's another type of pain called chronic pain. Chronic pain is, def- is defined as a pain that lasts for 12 or more weeks. In fact, there's an entire association dedicated to focus just on pain, the American Chronic Pain Association, which put out a report earlier this year that said in last, ye- last year we've spent $600 billion on chronic pain last year, and that was due to therapy and insurance and medication. And pain is a sensation that demands our attention. Like, no one, I don't care what you're doing, if pain starts to happen to you, everything else goes out the window. It demands your attention. Last week, it demanded our attention as we were in verses 13 to 17. Peter talked to us about how pain and suffering is inevitable. And if you live long enough, you will experience pain. And Peter tried to point us to that last week. He tried to make it very clear that all of us in this room will experience pain. All of us in this room will experience suffering. But in this week's verse, he does something interesting. Last week, he focused on us. This week, he focuses on us not even a little bit. He focuses on Jesus' pain. He focuses on Jesus' suffering. And one of the things I love most about the apostles uh, is their Christocentric view of life. The apostles focused on Jesus. Peter focuses on Jesus. Paul focuses on Jesus. That's why he says in places like Colossians chapter 1, verse 20. Uh, I think it's verse 28. He says, him we proclaim. Bad English, but good theology. Him, Jesus, we proclaim. And that's why as a church, we as a church focus deeply on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. If you do not like Jesus, you will have a hard time sitting through service here. And the reason you'll have a hard time sitting through service is because we want to focus on Jesus from the first song to the last scripture. We want to focus on the person and the work of Jesus, and that is exactly what Peter is doing. Many of you know I'm a one-trick pony. If there was 450 ways to get to God, I would preach all 450 ways to get to God. But the Scripture doesn't give us 450 ways. It gives us one. So I'm a one-trick pony. I I literally preach the same message and just come from different texts. And Y'all know I'm not really creative. You know, I say the same thing the exact same way. Why? Because we need the redundancy of the gospel. We need the redundancy of hearing about Jesus. Paul put it that way, him. We proclaim. And so Peter is going to do that once again today. He's going to focus us. He's going to take the attention off of us, our selfishness when it comes to suffering. It's always about us. But no, Peter is saying today, no, it's not about you. Let's look at the suffering of Jesus Christ. And if we look closely at this passage, we will pick up that suffering is not a divine punishment. Suffering really is a part of God's glorious plan. And we can see it as part of God's glorious plan by looking at Jesus Christ this morning. There's three main points of this passage. First point is that Christ suffered for our sins. The second point in the passage is that Christ is resurrected. And the third and final point that you'll get from this passage, if you just read through it, it is that Christ is now exalted and everything is at his rule and at his reign. And our passage this morning doesn't veer off the topic of his readers suffering. Like he's not dismissing the suffering. Again, remember in the text that these 
people that are hearing this letter are going through some serious suffering. Peter's not like ignoring their suffering. He's taking the attention off of them and putting it on Jesus Christ. And what we'll see in the text is that our king is victorious. That's, why, that's how we're going to end today. Our king, even in the midst of suffering, is victorious. And those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, you are also victorious. Pick me back up in verse number 18. Verse 18 says, it's a lot in this verse. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Let me lift up the first four words. For Christ also suffered. You should circle that word suffered because it's important to us to pick up. It's important to note that Peter does not start our time this morning by pointing us straight to the death of Christ. Now, yes, he's going to get, ultimately, that is what he's talking about, is the death of Christ. But he does something interesting. He wants his readers to experience what the death of Christ was. Like, Jesus didn't just die like that. No, the scripture says he suffered. And what Peter does well is he draws a distinction in our text this morning between the death of Christ and the suffering of Christ. And if you're in here and you're like, well, how did Christ suffer? And I watched the Passions of Christ and, you know, there was a little blood. It wasn't that bad. Listen, the Passion of Christ didn't even do it justice of what the, of what the suffering of Jesus was. The suffering of Jesus really can be defined in many, many, many ways. And I don't have time to deal with all. Let's just talk about three of them. First, Jesus, the first way that he suffered was before he even got to the cross and wasn't even physical. He suffered by betrayal and abandonment. Like, we run past the fact that Judas betrayed Jesus, and we're like, yeah, you know, that's supposed to happen. Do you know how much that would have hurt our Lord and Savior? Not only did, G not only did Judas act a fool, but Matthew will tell us that all the disciples fled him. In fact, let me read it to you. Matthew chapter 26, verse 56. If you're taking notes, that's a good verse to read. This is what it says. Then all the disciples left him and fled. And some of you in this, in this room, you know that feeling of, of, of abandonment and betrayal. Some of you, your best friends have betrayed you. Some of you, your family members have betrayed you. Well, guess what? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, was betrayed by the closest people to him. There was no one in scripture closer than the disciples, not even Jesus' mother. Like, remember that time she, was kind of, she came up to the party and she trying to get in? She couldn't even get in. And what did he say? These are my brothers. These is, this is my family. So he was betrayed by his own disciples. And the second way that he experienced suffering, it was physical. He was brutally beaten, mercifully beaten. In fact, the scriptures will tell us that they took thorns and they formed them into a crown. And we think, you know, that's, you know, we'll have pictures of the crown of thorns, but consider that they took a crown of thorns and crushed them into the skull of Jesus Christ. Other scriptures say that they literally took the beard and pulled it out of his face. I don't know if you've ever had a patch of hair pulled out. They pulled the very beard out of his face. There's another scripture that says that they took a blindfold and they put the blindfold around his eyes and they struck him in the face and said, mocking him, prophesy to us which one of us struck you. Our Lord and Savior suffered in the greatest, most agonizing, painful way that he would have suffered was on the cross. Like, consider that nails were driven into his hands. Nails were driven into his feet. He was pierced in his side. And consider that he literally drowned in his blood. 
That's, how, that's what crucifixion is. That is what the cross is. You, he would have had to lift up to get every single breath because crucifixion would have filled his lungs with blood, which is why Roman soldiers typically would break the legs of those that are on the cross. Why would he break the legs so that they couldn't lift up anymore so that they would die quicker? Our Lord and Savior suffered. Yes, he suffered abandonment. Yes, he suffered betrayal, but he physically suffered as well. The last and final way I just want to bring to you about the suffering of Jesus Christ really deals more with separation. And let me, let me just, let me put this in, in your mind. I would argue that the third and final way that I'm going to bring up that Christ suffered is the worst way he suffered. The cross was not the worst way that Jesus suffered. The worst way that Jesus suffered was feeling abandoned by his father. Please consider, Jesus had uninterrupted fellowship with the father since before creation. Like, fathom in your mind what life is like before Genesis 1. Jesus and the God, God the Father dwelt in uninterrupted fellowship. But what happens when he gets on the cross? Because of your sin, because of my sin, the fellowship that they had was temporarily broken. Here's how Matthew chapter 26, verse number, or Matthew 27, verse 46 will say, In the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Please note that Jesus did not sit on the cross and go, my God, my God, these nails hurt. Jesus did not sit on the cross and go, my God, my God, this crown of thorns is uncomfortable. But when he felt the separation of his father, he cries out. The only time you hear him crying out saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was painful for Jesus physically, but the separation spiritually from his father was even more painful than anything else that he would have experienced. And so Peter deems it necessary this morning to invite us in on the suffering of Jesus Christ. And suffering really is a theme throughout the book of First Peter. It's five chapters, and 14 times in those five chapters, Jesus, uh, Peter says he talks about suffering. But I'd argue that Jesus' suffering was much more unique than the rest of the sufferings that he's talking about. Last week, he talked about your suffering. Last week, he talked about our persecution. But this week, he talks about a very unique suffering, which was Jesus' suffering. How do I know Jesus' suffering was unique? Look back at the verse with me. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered, look at this, once for sins. In your suffering, in your persecution, in your hardship, have you ever suffered for somebody else's sin? Jesus didn't suffer for one person's sin. Jesus suffered for the sins of all of his people. For all time, the person that's not even born yet, Jesus goes to a cross and suffers for their sin. So the scripture tells us, listen, he suffered not just once, but I, I love the way the New Living Translation puts it. It says, once for all time. In other words, we need not look for another savior to suffer for us. Jesus is our all-sufficient savior that has suffered for your sin. That sin that you don't talk about, that sin that you hide, that nobody else knows but you and God, that sin. The Bible tells us that Jesus suffered for it. In the Old Testament, priests would have did animal sacrifices. And these animal sacrifices were temporary. They did not completely blot out sin. They were temporary atonements. But the scripture says that Christ suffered once for sin. In other words, the reason we're not sitting up here with an animal doing the sacrifices is because Jesus is, this is the dope thing about Jesus. 
Jesus steps on the scene as the priest, right? The priest would bring the sacrifice, prepare the sacrifice, and he would sacrifice the sacrifice, uh, sacrifice the animal. But Jesus steps in as the priest, but he also is the sacrifice. This is the Savior that we serve. The Bible says that he suffered once for all sin. And Peter tells us this morning that we should focus on this suffering. Why? Because this suffering of Jesus was unique. Why was it unique? It purchased my salvation. I never understood when I was a kid growing up. I, I would think and see pictures of the crucifixion of Jesus hanging on the cross, and that's one of the most famous pictures. But I often would ask myself, why did he have to die such a brutal death? Like, why couldn't he just die? Why did he have to be tortured and prosecuted illegally and beaten and bruised and beat with a cat of nine whips and tails and his flesh was literally ripped off him to where you could see his organs on the inside. Why did he have to die that death? Well, Peter tells us why. Because he suffered for your sins. Do you understand the holiness of our God? Our, our God is so holy that when he looks at sin, he, can, he has to condemn it. To the point where even his one and only son, Jesus didn't have, God didn't have two sons. He had one, and he looked at him, and he crushed him for our sin. And so what you see happen to Jesus happens because of our sin. We sit in church, and we want to give him a little thank you. We want to say, yeah, yeah, thank you, Lord. No, he died for your sins. And here's the reality. If he didn't die for your sin, you'd have to die for it. And the same punishment Jesus got, you would have to take. But the Bible tells us in verse number 18 that Christ also suffered once for our sin. Here's more uniqueness in Christ's death, in Christ's suffering. Verse 18, Christ also suffered once for sin. I love this. The righteous for the unrighteous. Now, I know you think that you are God's gift to the world, but can I promise you, in the text where it says the righteous, that ain't you. Jesus is the righteous one in the text. And when it speaks of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, what it's really referring to is the sinless nature of Jesus Christ, which is dope because when you think about the sinfulness of man, the reason why all of us in this room are considered sinful, everybody in this room, the reason we are is because it's inherited sin. Can I teach a little bit? Inherited sin, meaning it was passed down. So it was over before it started. The moment you were born, David will tell us in Psalm 51 that we were born in sin. We were shaping in iniquity. And so in other words, the moment you were born, the sin was inherited, passed down from your father, back to his father, back to his father, all the way back tracing to Adam. Here's why Jesus could come in and be righteous and sinless, because Jesus wasn't born of a man. Joseph was not Jesus' father, earthly father. And so Jesus goes into a womb of Mary and is conceived by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, he bypassed sin. And he's able to be a, a perfect sacrifice because he's sinless. Remember, in the Old Testament, that, that lamb that they would bring to sacrifice, remember that lamb had to be perfect without a spot or a wrinkle. That lamb had to be, it had no blemishes. Jesus Christ is that lamb that is no blemishes. Let me put some Bible here on the sin, sinlessness of Christ. Can you guys turn me up just a, a little bit more? Uh, Matthew chapter 27, verse 19. I love this one. The reason I love this one is because Jesus is standing before Pontius Pilate. And as he's standing before Pontius Pilate, his wife sends word. to Pontius Pilate's wife sends, not Jesus' wife. Pontius Pilate's wife sends word. 
to Pontius Pilate, and, he, and she says this in Matthew chapter 27, verse 19, have nothing to do with this righteous man. Notice, she knew that he was righteous. She knew that he was sinless. Let me put more Bible, Luke chapter 23, verse 47. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was, here it is, innocent. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, for our sake, he made him who knew no sin. Jesus did not know any sin. This one is very explicit. 1 John chapter 2, verse number 1, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Here it is, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Do not get it twisted. Our Lord and Savior never sinned. He was not conceived in sin. He was not tempted to sin. The Bible tells us in the scriptures that he is sinless, which means he doesn't deserve to be on the cross. That's really what that means. But notice that, this, that the text says the righteous for the unrighteous. If we just identified that Jesus is the righteous, can we all agree in this room that we are all the unrighteous in the text? That means nobody in this room can beat their chest and say, yeah, I'm, I'm righteous. I'm holy. I walk in holiness. No, you may have Christ-likeness, but I guarantee everybody in this room falls. Scripture is saying that Christ came to die, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? Because when you stand before God, if God the Father in all of his holiness sees your unrighteousness, he has to punish you. This is what makes Jesus so unique. Why? Because he dies for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. There's a term, a big term. If you're writing notes, you should write this down and look this up. It's called substitutionary atonement. Jesus dies in our place. I used to watch the show Underground. I, I don't know if it's canceled or not. Is it canceled? I heard Oprah was supposed to pick it up. What happened with that? She doing black love. I get it. I understand. I got it. There's a show that I used to watch called Underground, and, and in season one, there was this one episode that really, I mean, it, it really, I saw the gospel clearly through watching this episode. And in this episode, it was an episode of uh, a father and a son, and this is, the son just came of age where the master put the son out in the field to pick cotton. It's first time picking cotton. And the father is watching this son, and he's realizing that he's not going to make weight. What do I mean by make weight? At the end of the night, the master would have weighed all of the cotton bags. And if the cotton bag did not uh, weigh a certain amount, that person that picked would have got beaten, like brutally beaten. And so this father is watching his son, and his son is pricking his finger, and he, he's not picking the cotton right, but the father is experienced, and he's picked it and picked it before. And so they stand in line to weigh out their cotton bags. And as they stand in line, the father looks at the son's bag, and he knows that he's not going to make weight, and he does not want him to be beat. So what does he do? He switches the bag with him. And so when the sun goes up, he goes up with a heavy bag of cotton, gives it to the master. The master then weighs it, and the son gets to walk free without getting beaten. But the father that took the younger one's unfinished bag got brutally beaten instead of the, instead of the son. What is that called? Substitutionary atonement. The one that was supposed to be beaten walked free. That's what I love about the gospel. In the gospel, the innocent gets condemned while the guilty get to walk free. Why? Because Jesus Christ, the Bible says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Here's how 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 will put it. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sin, meaning he appeases God. Christ is acceptable to God 
because the text tells us that he is righteous. So Christ bore your sin. Praise God that he bore all of our sins. Praise God that he bore your children's sins. Those who confess Jesus as Lord. I don't want everyone, I don't want to breed a false sense of security where everybody's like, well, you died of my sin. Have you trusted him? Because those who put their faith in him, he bears, he switches bags with you. It's exactly what he does. And his, 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 the reason he did that is very clear in the text. Let's keep going. I told you there's a lot in verse 18. It says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Here it is. Here's the reason, the goal of it, that he might bring us to God. Christ in his death, in his substitutionary atonement, brings you and I to God the Father. When I used to work at Verizon Wireless, I worked in the corporate office for Verizon Wireless before we planted this church. Did it for nine years. I loved it. And the building I worked in was laid out, was right on the outskirts of Philadelphia. It was laid out in a weird way, and you couldn't get access to every single room. So I had a, what you would call a castle card or a key card that had a certain limit. I could get into certain places. Most of the places I can get into, except this one room, this one place where uh, they would handle government contracts, or as they were called, white glove contracts, because they dealt with the contracts for like the White House and the Army and the Navy, and so they were sensitive contracts. So not everybody could walk up in there. But my boss had access to get in there. Why? Because she would have to go in there for meetings and to bring certain contracts up to them. And so when she, when it was one day, she, she was like, I need you to go sit in on a meeting for me. She told me where to go, and I was like, all right, no problem. And I was kind of excited because I've never been in that room, so I was like, all right, cool. So I get there, and I pull out my little weak castle card and put it up to the thing, and it turns red and says denied. And I had to call her and say, listen, my card is denied. I thought I had some type of access that I don't. She says, oh, 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 you cannot get in without me. Let me walk over there and let you in. She brings over her castle card. She puts it in. It says access granted, and we both walk in. That is what, when it says he brings us to God, that is what Jesus does for you. He becomes your all-access pass into heaven. And the beauty in Jesus doing it is no one else has access to that card. Like nobody else can say, I'll swipe you in. Only Jesus Christ has full access. The Bible says it this way. He brings us to the Father. Let's put it this way. You don't bring yourself to the Father. I don't care how good you think you are. If you have that weighing system where my good is going to outweigh my bad, you will not have access. Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone brings us to God the Father. This is how Jesus put it in John chapter 14, verse 6. He says, I am the way. He doesn't say a way. I am the truth. I'm not a truth. And I'm the life. And then he goes on to say, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Elvis Presley used to wear, I don't know if you guys know this, Elvis Presley used to wear multiple uh, medals or chains on his neck. One of them was a cross. He also used to wear the Star of David, and he used to wear other religious medals on his chest. And people would often be confused by what was his actual religion. And so people would ask Elvis, like, what do you subscribe? What do you believe in? And he says, man, I believe in all of them. The reason I believe in all of them is because I don't want to miss out on heaven because of a technicality. The believer does not have to wear a bunch of different medals. We only wear one, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. There's no other means in which you are brought to God. The only way you and I are brought to God, and I know I'm, you've heard this before, but we are so prone to forget it. What we do is verbally we'll say, yeah, I believe in the cross and the cross alone, but our actions will say, but I got to work for it. 
I got to try harder. I got to do more. I got to perform for Jesus. I got to perform in order to get into heaven. No, Jesus performed. You do not have to perform because Jesus has done it. He's covered all the bases for you. You do not have to be like Elvis Presley. Let's keep going now. I'm going to I'm going to move quickly through verses 19 to 21. And the reason is, if I can just be as honest as possible, these texts, like some of the greatest minds have looked at these texts and walked away and said, I don't know what Peter's saying. So I'm not going to act like I know what Peter's saying this morning. I'm going to tell you what he's not saying, though. Verse 18, let's go to verse 18 straight through to 21. Um, Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, lowercase s, by the way. 20, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patient waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, was brought safely through the waters. Here's a very problem text. Verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal from dirt, but as an appeal to God through good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's what Martin Luther said, great famous theologian. Martin Luther said this. He said, a wonderful text is this, but a more obscure passage, perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certain what Peter means. When great theologians like Martin Luther can read this text and walk away and say, I have no clue what he's talking about. You know the Bible is is hard to understand. Not to mention, you remember when Peter said that Paul's words were hard to understand? I don't know if y'all remember that. Peter literally says the things that Paul writes are hard to understand. When the Bible says it's hard to understand, the Bible is hard to understand. And so the scripture tells us this morning that, I mean, the, 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 the great thinkers of scriptures tell us this morning, listen, it's hard to understand this passage. But let me tell you what he's not saying. In verse 19 where it says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. The verse is not saying that Jesus went into hell, because some people believe this, that Jesus went into hell and preached to give the people in hell a second chance. No, we don't get a second chance. Either you believe or you don't believe. And so the the scripture isn't saying that Jesus goes into hell and the spirits of, where it says the spirits that are in prison, he doesn't go into hell and preach the good news to them and give them a second chance to be saved. The The best way to understand this is, When it talks about the spirits in prison, really what it's talking about is the angelic world. And this is consistent with Acts chapter 2. Remember in Acts chapter 2 where Peter says that Jesus went into Hades. Hades is known as the departed, the, the place of the departed spirits. And so in some mystical way that we can't completely fathom, when Jesus dies and before he rises from the dead, he makes a proclamation to the angelic world saying, I'm victorious. That's basically what happens, which is kind of dope. Like, if you think about Jesus, like, he suffers on the cross. He's there, you know, three days. He's he's down. And then at the end of it, the Bible says that he folds his face cloth, which is, that messes me up every time I think about the fact that Jesus, like, folded it neatly and walked away from it, pretty much saying, I completed the work. But the scripture tells us today that somewhere between that time, he goes into the angelic world, not just angels, but demonic presence He goes in and he says, that grave that you put me in, it couldn't hold you, boy. That's what Jesus said. He went and made a proclamation that not even death could hold me down. 
And, he, and what, it, what is dope is he could have sent the angel to say. He could have sent Gabriel and said, yo, tell the angelic world that I'm, yeah, I'm still here. Jesus goes and personally shows, which is dope. And here's why it's dope. I'm pretty sure that after the death of Christ, the angelic world thought they had him. Why am I saying that? First Corinthians chapter 2, verse number 8 says this. Now the rulers of this day. Uh, now the ruler of, of this time didn't understand this. For if they did, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. There was some ignorance in the death of Christ, but Jesus clears it all up. He goes to the angelic world and say, listen, I'm making a proclamation. I am still here. Basically, he went there and said, I just killed death. Death that was supposed to swallow me up and swallow all of us up, I already killed that. There was an old church, a Baptist church in the South that used to have Bible study every Tuesday night. And on their Bible studies, there was one man that would come in every Tuesday night. And he would make this proclamation during their time of prayer. He would say, Lord, clean out the spider webs out of my life, which was annoying to the rest of the church because they knew his life and his life was filled with drugs and sex and alcohol. But nevertheless, every, son, every Tuesday, he would come in this place and say, Lord, clean out the spider webs out of my life next week. Lord, clean out the spider webs out of my life. When there was one Tuesday where one old sanctified mother that's been walking with Jesus for, you know, sanctified mothers, it's like they can cuss you out. But love Jesus at the same time. It's the weirdest dynamic. Oh, sanctified mother was sitting on the second row and she sees this young man going, Lord, clean out the spider webs out of my life. And she interrupts his prayer and says, no, Lord, don't clean out the spider webs out of his life. Kill the spider. And that is what Jesus is announcing this morning. Jesus is announcing, I am not killing the spider webs out of your life. I'm destroying the spider web that makes the, the spider that makes the spider webs. He's very clear. Listen, I and victorious. He's announcing his victory over his enemy. And to further prove that he's announcing his victory over the enemy, look at verse 22. Who was gone into the heavens and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Verse 22 just let us know that Jesus is reigning victorious. First of all, the Bible just said he's at the right hand of the Father. It's a position of power. And I know you left-handed people are like, well, Jesus is not left-handed. Well, he's actually ambidextrous. He can use both. But the right hand of God is a position of power and honor and prestige. The Bible just said, Peter says that Jesus is at that right hand, sitting next to the Father in a place of power where all other angelic, angelic world is subject to him. Which is interesting because when you notice how we first started our text this morning. It talked about the suffering of Jesus. But it ends in verse 22 by saying, yeah, he suffered, but he rose and he is victorious, which is very encouraging for everyone in this room. If you in this room are going through hardship, if you're going through suffering and you're going through persecution, please note that the story doesn't end bad for you. The text tells us that Jesus is now sitting at the right hand of the Father. And if Jesus is in a place of prestige, his children will be accepted because of him. In other words, all of us in this room that are going through, at one, at one point when we stand before the Lord and he invites you in, you will not suffer anymore. You will not go through anymore. Jesus is accepted. Here's what Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, and I'm ending here. Therefore, God has exalted him. And bestowed on him a name that is above all other names. So at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every, 
In heaven and on earth and under the earth, every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is victorious. If there's no, we do not serve a weak, passive king. We do not serve a king that ran through the lilies and the tulips with flowing hair. No, Jesus was a monster. The Bible tells us, here's how it says it. The suffering servant that was a lamb is now a victorious king that will come back like a ferocious lion. That's what the scriptures is affirming today. And that is who we believe in. Let every heart be bowed and every eye closed. Father, this morning, reality is our suffering right now feels like it's going to take us out. I think I speak on behalf of the whole room when I say it's life on earth is hard. But I thank you this morning that you deemed it necessary through Peter's words not to look at our own suffering. But you deemed it necessary to put the focus on the suffering of Jesus. Why? Because you knew that that and that alone is what brings us into your presence. Father, forgive us for suffering selfishly in a way that we've made our whole world around our suffering. Forgive us, Lord. None of us in this room have suffered more than Jesus. We just haven't. Our suffering feels like it, but it pales into comparison. None of us have ever taken thorns in our head. None of us have ever had the beard pulled out of our face. We've never been struck in our face. But Lord, your son, Jesus Christ, has. And this morning, as we focus on him and his suffering, we thank you that the story doesn't end with him still in the grave. We thank you that the story doesn't end with the enemy being victorious over him. We thank you that the story goes on. As the old saints would say, three days later, he rose again. And now that he rose, he has all power in his hand. And I thank you, Lord, that we serve that type of a God. We serve that type of a king. We serve that type of a savior that has victory over death. So, Father, this morning as we look at the cobwebs in our lives, remind us this morning that you killed the spider. You didn't remove the cobwebs. You actually destroyed the thing that's making mess in our lives. Demonic influence does not have rule over us. Demonic presence does not have rule over us. We are yours. And so, Father, those that haven't trusted you in this room, I pray that they would feel the weight of this, especially verse 18. Christ died for our sins, but I pray that they, we love them enough, Lord, to tell them that if they haven't trusted in Christ that dies for your sins, that they have to die for their own sins. They have to pay the full wrath of you. Father, as we look at the cross, we realize that that wasn't pretty. How you dealt with sin was not pretty you'll deal with it again. Lord, I pray, Lord, that those that don't know you, we th first of all, we thank you that salvation isn't even left up to us. That if you want somebody saved, they're saved. You change hearts, Lord. You remove the heart of stone and you give a soft heart of flesh that can be penetrated. And this morning, Lord, we pray for those that don't know you. We pray for those that don't know you in this room. But Lord, we're not naive to think that even our neighbors that are outside of this room, Lord, we pray that those that do not know you 
will run across people that do know you and can give their life to you. You usher people into what we would call the gospel of you, realizing that they don't have to work for their own salvation, but it's purchased on the cross. Jesus Christ, help us to suffer well, Lord. Help those to, that are going through right now, help us to not throw our hands up and say, woe is me, I'm being punished. No, help us to realize that you're sanctifying us, helping us grow. Really, our suffering is helping us to look more like Jesus. And we thank you for that, Lord. Help us to learn what the lesson in suffering is this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen.